0: Uh, if you're new with us, you may not know that we're in the midst of a study of the book of Revelation, and uh, these last, last week and this week, particularly what you stepped into is a study of Satan and uh, his activity, so welcome to New Hope. <laughs> um, next week, particularly, we're going to look at the way that this activity of Satan bleeds over into the work of the Antichrist, the one known as 666 in the Scriptures, or the beast, we'll look a little bit at his characteristics and his activity today. But last week, we looked extensively at the war that broke out in heaven and the battle that took place between the fallen angels and the holy angels. Specifically, we're warned in Scripture that Satan is scheming for our demise, looking for ways to attack us and bring us down. Might be little things, might be huge things, but for sure he's up against us. This is what Paul said to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 2:11. He's warning that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. He was writing specifically to the Corinthian church because they had an issue with forgiveness. There was some divisiveness taking place within the church, some arguing And Paul was warning them, don't let that overcome you. That's just one of Satan's schemes. And so he ended up by saying that there be no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. His schemes mean his purposes, his disposition, his intellect. The reason that he does what he does is because he has a plan. It is anti-God, therefore anti-Christ, That's where it comes from. He's against Christ and God's plans, so he's anti-Christ. From this vantage point we're at this morning, what we're doing with chapter 12 and chapter 13, as you'll discover next week, is looking at the tribulation through the eyes of satanic activity. We've discovered in the first few weeks, looking at the judgments, the seal judgments, the bowl judgments, the trumpet judgments, we've discovered that there's plagues taking place on the earth in the last days, those last seven years. These last three and a half of the seven years that we're beginning to step into now are far, far more intense than the first ones that we studied. It's because Satan is thrown down to the earth as you're gonna discover this morning. When you look at chapter 12, you'll find that there's some very easy ways to follow the drama that takes place. It's made up of a few major characters. And six of them, specifically, the first one is the woman who's clothed with the sun. Last week we discovered in Revelation chapter 12 that this woman who's clothed with the sun is Israel, the nation of Israel. The red dragon that's represented is Satan himself. The male child that's spoken of is Christ Jesus. And the fourth one is the archangel, Michael, the one who's the mighty warrior who leads the armies of heaven against the armies of hell in the battle. And next week you'll discover the beast. The beast coming up out of the sea and the beast coming up from the earth. The activities of the Antichrist. Let's right now jump back into the battle scene where we left off last week. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find them in the pew racks in front of you. And if you're new at New Hope, you may not know that those are there not only for your benefit this morning, but if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those with you. We really want you to have God's Word in your hand. You'll also see the words up on the screen. Revelation 12:7. This is the battle scene. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. We looked at this extensively last week, so just let me summarize it this way. The outcome of the war, the result of the battle, is that Satan is thrown to earth, and it's a forceful throw, as you'll see in just a few minutes. It wasn't a gentle, okay, get out of here. It's a, an ekbalo, as Scripture says, and it was a throwing down. And with him went all the fallen angels as well. So in verse 9, this is where it picks up. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. last week, I quoted a passage from Matthew in which Jesus said, I was there when Satan fell from heaven like lightning, meaning past tense. Yet this here is talking about future tense. How can there be two events like that? And so some individuals came to me and said, what's going on? I I see two specific events. Well, indeed, there are. The one that Jesus was speaking of is the one in which Satan rebelled against God. Remember, Scripture says in Ezekiel that Satan was the exalted angel, the highest of God's creation, called the anointed cherub. And he rebelled against God because he said, I will ascend the mountain of God and I will be as God. And he rebelled and took a bunch of angels with him. And so he fell from his position as the anointed cherub. That's what Jesus was speaking of when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. This particular passage you're looking at here is a permanent casting out of heaven in which he no longer has access to God. So it's a second event It's a permanent throwing down. This is Satan's permanent expulsion from heaven. No longer gets access to God. We understand right now, in our time frame, in our day and age, he has access to heaven to freely accuse us, as you're going to see come out in the text in just a minute. First of all, I want to show you that it says that he's the great dragon. I taught you a word a couple weeks ago. The word great is megas, huge. So John looks and he sees this megas dragon, this huge dragon, which is speaking specifically of his terrifying and horrible power. Any place he goes, he can inflict harm and he can bring disaster. The names of Satan that are shown here mean something significant. If you still have last week's notes, perhaps when you get home later today and you flip it open, you look to the back page and you'll see on the back of last week's notes, we listed about 28 names for Satan From the Bible. These three that are listed here, I'm going to go over with you real quickly this morning. There's three descriptive phrases here to identify Satan. The first one, he's called the Serpent of Old. That title stresses his craftiness. And I'm not talking about him being a frequent shopper at the Hobby Lobby, okay? This is a guy who's crafty and cunning in all his ways. Genesis 3 1 says specifically that he was more crafty than any of the creatures God had created. Genesis 3 1. Now the serpent was more crafty. The word is a room. Look at the definition for it. A room means this cunning in a bad sense, subtle. He's very careful about what he does. He has a plan. The next word that's used in your text is that he's called the devil, the diabolos. He's like a prosecuting attorney. Look at the definition for this, diabolos, a traducer, a false accuser, a slanderer. Now, don't go home or leave church today and say, our pastor said that the devil is like a lawyer, okay? That's (laughs) not what I'm implying, I've, I've heard lots of lawyer jokes over the years. This is not one of them. They're saying specifically that Satan, here, the devil, the Diablos, is the one who stands in God's courtroom and he makes accusations about you, about your activities to God. He's a slanderer of your character and your personality. True and untrue statements. He brings them before God. And the next statement is, the third one, is that he's called Satan, Satanas. Here's the definition for Satan. It's a Hebrew word, which is very interesting. An opponent, adversary, one who withstands an accuser. The reason it's interesting is because the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. You find very few Hebrew words in the New Testament in the Greek version. They've put in a Hebrew word because this is an old name. It's an ancient name by which he's known for generations past. And he's known specifically as the opponent, the adversary of God, one who withstands and the accuser. So, specifically, we've got three titles here the serpent of old, he's like a prosecutor, the devil, the diablos, and Satan or Satanas, the adversary. And look at what his action is. His action is he's one who deceives the whole world. Do you notice that it's not past tense? It's not that he deceived mankind back in the garden. It's that it's a continuing action. He deceives, keeps on doing it constantly. And who is he deceiving? Scripture says he's deceiving the whole world, everyone. He's bringing false truth to. Look at the definition for deceive up on the screen. Planao, to cause to roam from safety, truth, virtue, to go astray, to seduce, wander, to mislead. Does that match the characteristics that you know of when you think of the evil one? Absolutely. That's his characteristic. That's what he wants to do. He wants to mislead. He started with the fallen angels, misleading them into believing that they could rebel against God, and now he does it with mankind. Up until this moment in time, in the timeline of future things, and I'm going to show you a timeline next week of how this all fits together, but up until this point in the timeline, Satan has had access to God. So in future things, when we come to this verse, Satan has been accusing you before God. That is his nature. That is his characteristic. I'll show you an example of that from Scripture. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Look up on the screen with me at the book of Job, and you'll see Satan coming before God to accuse a man. Job chapter 1. Now, there was a day when the sons of man came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, "'From where do you come?' Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? At this moment, if I'm Job, I'm going, No! Don't mention me! Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord. Now watch, there's a truth and an untruth here. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. He went on to say, if you inflict pain upon him, he will curse you to your face. A lie. So he told a truth about Job saying, yeah, he lives in a gated community. His stocks are going through the roof. He's doing really well. No wonder he praises you. Cause him harm and he'll curse you. See, the accuser in his continual activity, that's the tense of what's going on here. It's his action. He's always bringing actions against us. So as a result of Satan being thrown down from heaven who can no longer accuse, John hears something specific being uttered. You see that in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Now you notice that the voice is not identified. But I speculate that what you're seeing here is a repeat of the voice of the martyrs from Revelation chapter 6, specifically because they say, the accuser of our brethren, which tells me that these individuals who are in heaven are aware of what's going on in earth. I have people ask me that all the time. Do people who have died and gone to heaven, are they aware of earthly activities? I believe, according to Scripture, they are aware of the things taking place on earth. Specifically, they know that Satan's been accusing these individuals, and they're aware that he's been thrown down. And so they're rejoicing because they're seeing what's happened on earth. Now, I'm not sure they're aware of every single detail, but they're certainly aware of what's going on here. Do you notice in the midst of this, they make a very interesting statement? They say, the authority of his Christ have come. Now that one should trouble you if you're a theologian because you will think back to Matthew chapter 28 and Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All excusia, meaning I got the power. But here it says his power has come, meaning a future thing. If you're interested in really digging into that, I'll give you the answer on it next week when you come back, okay? i will explain it to you at that time. But right now I want you to see that he's specifically thrown down and they're rejoicing because of this. The word is ekbalo. I told you I would explain that to you. Look at the definition for it. Ekbalo means to throw in a violent and intense way to cast out. Now, if you're NBA basketball fans, I explained this a little bit last week. If you've ever watched somebody like Shaquille O'Neal play basketball, back before they reinforced the backboards and the glass didn't shatter, the glass shattered when somebody like Shaquille O'Neal stuffed it down, okay? That's ekbalo. It's a picking up and slamming down. That's the word that's used here. So Satan is thrown ekbalo to the earth. And so there's this rejoicing that takes place. Verse 11, And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced, when faced with death. If you're going to take any particular verse in chapter 12 and circle it and say, there's a standout verse, that's it. And the reason for that specifically is because it sums up the power that you personally have to fight against the attacks of Satan. First, you have to ask yourself, who's the they? It says, and they overcame him. Well, the they is the people of the earth, the brethren. They're rejoicing because the accused of the brethren has been thrown down. So now they're following up by saying, and they overcame him. Now, that word should be familiar to you. If you've been studying through Revelation with us over the last number of weeks, we've used that word overcame or overcomer over and over again. Remember the definition for it? Nikao the word Nike comes from this the definition for it like Nike sportswear look at the definition Nikao to subdue to conquer to overcome to prevail get the victory if these guys are over, able to overcome Satan they're able to get the victory over the evil one i'd want to know how they can do that wouldn't you Look specifically at what this verse says that they did. And because of the word of their testimony, because of the blood of the Lamb, and they did not love their life. There are three specific weapons that you have when you're fighting against evil forces. And believe me, you are fighting against evil forces, whether you know it or not. These three weapons that you have start off, first of all, with the first one. The very first weapon is the blood of the Lamb. It says specifically, the blood of the cross guarantees our forgiveness. That God has forgiven us if we belong to Jesus Christ. So it says, because of the blood of the Lamb, they overcame us, overcame him that's why Paul wrote what he wrote in the book of Romans when he said if God is for us who can be against us in other words God overcame Satan we're washed in the blood of Christ and so therefore the accusations are invalid in God's courtroom there is no accusation that he can throw against you that can possibly stand true or untrue because God has forgiven those accusations Look at what Paul wrote to the Romans when he said this, Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us, church, from the love of Christ? That's why Paul ends it with that question. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He has defeated Satan. Now, there's a specific part to deploying this first weapon. You have to admit you are indeed a sinner. Those accusations are true. Yeah, what Satan's saying about me? Yeah, he's right. Well, some of them aren't. But those accusations are true. We are sinners in need of a Savior. But don't you ever stop there. You're reaping. to Satan is that you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, that you have been forgiven of your sins, and there's no accusation that he can bring against you because of the cross of Christ. Absolutely nothing he can say can stand. That's why Paul says, if God is for you, who can be against you? Second weapon. This would be a good time to say amen, church, all right? (laughs) Second weapon is the word of your testimony. It means how you live your life and how you represent the word. Do you know that you are powerful? You step into Satan's territory when you begin talking about what God has done in your life. When you begin sharing with people what he has done, how he has done it, is a threat to the kingdom of Satan. And he would like to advance against you. But when you say, no, he has washed me in the blood of the lamb and this is what he has done in my life, it's a threat to Satan. So how you live your life, how you say it, what you do is another weapon that you have. Your testimony is powerful. That's what this text says. And the third weapon that I see here is an evolution of stages. The first one applies to everyone who names the name of Christ. We can all be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Not everyone is bold enough to share their testimony, but Scripture says that we should. And the third stage is that they were willing to lay down their life. That's a mature believer. That's someone who's really stepped it up and says, I love Jesus more than I love my own life. And so I'm willing to put it all out there. So we see the blood of the lamb renders Satan totally inept. We see the word of our testimony renders Satan totally inept. And we see a refusal to love life more than to love Christ. We love him more than what we love our life here's the remarkable thing about weapons they look really really good in a showcase I have friends who keep their weapons in safes just like I do they look great in the safe but if you don't get those weapons out and use them they're just a showpiece it's just something to talk about it doesn't carry out any firepower does it So when my wife first wanted to shoot skeet, we threw up some clay pigeons, wanted her to try it out, got out this 12-gauge shotgun, convinced her it would not hurt her, convinced her that it would not bruise her shoulder, showed her how to put it into her shoulder, how to hold it tight so that when the weapon went off, it would do the least amount of damage to her. Every time she pulled the gun up, the clay pigeon would go out and she'd put the gun down and say, are you sure it's not going to hurt me? (laughs) Clay pigeon falls. Throw another one up. Are you sure? So finally, she shot the gun, and sure enough, it hurt her. Why? Because it's explosive power in that shell. That gun is a weapon. You have a weapon, church. You have these three weapons. Use your weapons, pull them out of the holster, and say to Satan, Back off! I've got a weapon, and my weapon is the blood of Jesus Christ. You cannot stand against me. That's what you have to use. Verse 12, For this rejoice, reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So first of all, the people in heaven who are already redeemed... They're in heaven in eternity. They're saying, everybody high fives all the way around. The accuser's gone. He can't bring any more accusations against our brethren. And he never will be again. Satan has failed. But he doesn't give up very easily, does he? He finds himself on the earth. And so, John writes, woe to the earth and the sea. Now, think back with me. This is week 24 in Revelation. We discovered after the writings to the churches, week 6 forward, that there were horrible things that happened on planet Earth, weren't there? Earthquakes, plagues, one-third of the population of the Earth wiped out, then a quarter of the population of the Earth wiped out. Earthquakes continuing to tremble the surface of the Earth. All of that was compounded and followed by demons being released from the abyss. Now add to it the reason that I said to you the last half of the tribulation is far worse than the first half. Satan has come down among them and he has great wrath. You see, at this point, Satan has a very simple battle plan. Exterminate all the believers in God. Wipe them out. Because if he can wipe out all the followers of God, what he's wanted for his entire existence will occur. He has wanted to be worshipped. And all the earth will worship him once the believers are out of the way. Look with me at Revelation chapter 13 up on the screen. You'll see coming up in two weeks, you'll understand that the earth is going to turn and worship him. Revelation 13, 4. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. That's the Antichrist. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? One more verse, Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. So we see This one who's been ekbalo, thrown to the earth, finds himself with great wrath. Why? Because he knows he has only a short time. From this point forward in time, 1260 days, three and a half years, Scripture says, to carry out his plan. You know Satan has read the book, don't you? You understand he has read Revelation just like you have. He understands what God says his future is, is the abyss, that he will be chained and thrown in. He doesn't want that for his future, so he's going to carry out his battle plan, and the battle grows very, very dark. Just like in the fourth quarter of a football game, teams really step it up when the clock winds down. They carry out their exercises so they can score Satan does the same thing. He intensifies his activities. He desperately wants to prevent the kingdom of Christ from arriving on the earth. So this word that I want to draw you to right now represents his wrath. I told you the word megas, great, means huge, nothing bigger, the biggest measurement that they had at this time. And John writes that he has megas wrath. Look at the definition for wrath. It's the word thumos. It means this, passion as if breathing hard, fierceness, indignation. When you go back and look at the artwork of the masters, look at anything from 1100 A.D. all the way up through about 1700 A.D., in art history, you'll find that many of the ancient painters, when they depicted Satan, showed him as a dragon, and they always show him in one way, with breath flowing forth from his nostrils as a dragon, letting this vapor utter out because of this word, thumos. Thumos means indignation. I hate you. That's what's going on here. He has an anger problem. I had a guy come to me after the 9 o'clock service who said, It looks like this guy really needs counseling. I don't know how you could get him in a counseling office, but yeah, he has an anger issue. He hates the people of God, and he's desperate because he's been ejected from heaven, and he knows that his time is short. So follow with me in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, meaning Israel, who gave birth to the male child, meaning Jesus. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So for three and a half years, we see that God's going to care for the nation of Israel out in the wilderness, that he's going to watch over them. They've got the power of God on their side. Why? Why? Why in the world is God always catching the backside of the Jews? Do you know that they hate Jesus? They want nothing to do with him. And yet scripture says they're going to be protected. And you have to ask yourself, why? Because God's word says so. He promised that he would restore, protect, redeem, and save the nation. Matter of fact, Romans chapter eleven it says, "Israel shall be saved." This is the way it literally says it. Paul wrote this Romans eleven twenty five: For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. The Jews will turn to Jesus in the last days, but it will come at an enormous expense. They will experience the fury of Satan's wrath being unleashed upon them, and he will persecute them. The Holocaust in the 1940s was horrible. One quarter of the Jewish population of the planet Earth was wiped out, exterminated. And don't think Satan wasn't behind that. In the last days, Scripture tells us that two-thirds of the nation of Israel will be exterminated again. As much as the Jewish people don't want to see another holocaust, Scripture promises that it's going to come. But in the midst of it, there will be a turning to Jesus such as never happened before in the history of the world because God's Word promises it. So once he's thrown out of heaven, he's going to give his full concentrated attention to persecuting the woman, going right after her with an intense hatred, and the woman is Israel. But what does God do in the midst of this? He catches them. He says he's going to bear them on the wings of an eagle. There are some theologians who say, this is the United States Air Force coming to their aid, and I don't really think so. I think what you're seeing here is a metaphorical description that God is going to bear them on eagles' wings just like he did when he delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh. Do you remember what he said to the children of Israel? Exodus chapter 19, look what I did to Egypt and I rescued you and brought you out. Look up on the screen, Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So this metaphor describes how God's going to deliver and protect and give safety to the nation of Israel. Specifically, we're told that he's going to persecute. He's going to persecute to such a degree that no one has ever experienced it before. The word persecute is dioko, and it means by implication to persecute, to ensue, to follow after. So Satan, breathing venom, he hates this nation. And he chases after them wherever they go, looking to capture them. This word is used very rarely in the New Testament, and it always means with a hostile intent. And there's only one response. There's only one thing that they can do, flee, I encourage you later today to read Matthew chapter 24. When you see what Jesus said specifically about what was going to happen in those last days to the nation of Israel, this will all make sense to you. But that's the part where Jesus said, if you're on the rooftop, don't go down into the house to get your coat. If you're out in the field, run to the mountains. And woe to you if you are nursing babies or if you are pregnant. That's where that passage comes from. When you see the abomination of desolation entering the temple run for the mountains. Satan apparently will know where they're at, but God will protect them. So we see now that he's no longer able to attack the male child. He's no longer able to accuse the saints. He no longer has access to heaven. And so Satan now pursues the woman, Israel. Verse 15 wraps this up. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. So that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of its mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Remember I told you when we started studying study of Revelation, you've got to be careful when you see the word Like. It says, he poured water like a river out of his mouth. It's very likely that what you're looking at here is the attack of an army. Scripture says many times in Jeremiah and Isaiah that when the enemies came against Israel, they flowed like a river against them, surging against the nation of God's chosen people. I think what we're seeing here is an overwhelming evil force of a military might coming against them. However, I'll speculate, it could be a literal flood. In any case, he takes us back to what God did again for Moses and the children of Israel when he says the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed up the enemies and the dragon became enraged with the woman and made war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I see he's three times a loser here. First one, he failed to destroy the man-child Jesus. Second one, he lost the war in heaven. Third one, he's been unable to destroy the woman Israel. And now he pursues the believers, Jew and Gentile alike. So in the last days, in those last three and a half years, there will be no place safe. And the Antichrist, as you're going to learn next week, the one with the mark of the beast, 666, will go after the believers of Jesus Christ and will begin an extermination process like the earth has never known. Regardless of all that, note the characteristic of Satan. He went off to make war with those who what? Who keep the commandments of God and who hold to Jesus. Is that you? Absolutely. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you keep the commandments of God, you follow after Jesus, then you better be in a position to identify the enemy. That's why I said what you did, what I did to you last week. You have to be able to identify the enemy because he can identify you. He can pick you out. He knows who the believers are. Specifically, Scripture says in 2 Timothy 3.12, you who live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. He doesn't let up. Remember this, church. The Christian life is not a playground. It is a battleground. It is a place where you encounter the enemy. So this third point, the believers on earth overcame. You remember the word, nakao. How in the world did they overcame? How did they overcome Satan? You learned about your weapons. You learned that it's not through gimmicks. There's no chanting. There's no incantations. There's no exorcisms You can't bind Satan. He is the most powerful being God created. He will one day be thrown into the abyss. But you have a weapon against him because of the blood of the Lamb. This is what 1 John 4 4 says. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Do you believe that? Absolutely. So let me take you back to Romans 8.31 and read that whole passage to you so you understand the framework in which Paul wrote this. Here's what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death All day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And this is why Paul wrote this next verse. Because he understood what we're up against. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, church. Let's pray. Father, you have promised us in your word that nothing can separate us from you. No attack of the evil one. Many of us in this room feel like we encounter him on a daily basis. Others feel like they don't ever encounter him at all. Father, in whatever form his attacks come, help us first of all to identify when they're the attacks of the enemy versus just our own bad choices. But whatever the case, Father, help us to recognize we are protected in the blood of the Lamb, that we have weapons against him, Because you sent your son to redeem us and bring us under your protection. Because we have the word of testimony of what you have done in our life. Father, make us bold on your behalf that we would even be willing to put our lives on the line. Father, specifically, I ask for these individuals who are going to serve in missions this summer, not only that you protect them, but you give them opportunity to witness for you in ways they have never known before. God, we declare this truth. There is no one like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.